Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. This is The Movies That Made Me with your hosts, Josh Olson and Joe Dante. Josh, and we're back with part two of uh, Alan Arkish taking us to film school. But before we get into that, just a little bit of house cleaning. Um, first of all, first and foremost, uh, our Patreon. As you probably know, we do have a Patreon. And if you want to go to patreon.com and find the movies that made me and become one of our Patreon members, uh, it means, first and foremost, that you're going to be supporting us, which we really, really, really appreciate. About once a month, we're going to be giving you uh, exclusive content. Um, earlier, we did a uh, Josh and Joe mailbag that was a lot of fun. Um, and in fact, we're a little bit early with the next one, but uh, just uh, a couple of days ago, uh, we put up our newest thing, which is a conversation I had over Zoom with my friend Billy Friedkin about Sorcerer that um, uh, has only been seen by a handful of people at a screening. Uh, we're going to be releasing it um, on the uh, Trailers from Hell website uh, eventually. But right now, um, the only place you get to see this uh, wonderful conversation with our late friend is on the Patreon site. And all I'll say is he does actually say a couple things that I've never heard him say about uh, both Sorcerer and The Exorcist, and French Connection. Also, my God, we won. The Writer's Reel strike is over. We got a really, really solid deal. There's some great stuff in here. Um, what's amazing is we would have taken this deal a week into it. I have no idea what the AMPTP uh, plan was, what they think they got out of this. As far as I can tell, they lost about half a billion dollars. Some of them are going to lose their jobs, and we got what we wanted and what we needed. This is what happens when you have solidarity. This is what happens when unions stand together. We could not have done it without SAG. Honest to God, I don't think if the UAW workers hadn't gone out, it would have happened when it happened. Um, this is great stuff. I also want to shout out to the uh, two heroes of the strike. Um, the anonymous person uh, who said in that deadline article that they were going to hold out until uh, people started losing houses because that guy fired everybody up to keep going. And then, of course, the one and only Bill Maher, uh, who came out um, with some really stupid, obnoxious comments and fired us all up. In fact, it's really tragic. We were going to hit his show. There was going to be the biggest picket you ever saw. We were going to infiltrate the audience. We were going to shut him down live. Would have been great, but um, oh well. Another time, perhaps. But in any case, shout out to that guy and shout out to Bill Maher. Uh, we couldn't have done it without you people. Anyway, uh, let's get into it. Uh, we are, I believe, talking about pacing. So pacing, um, I think, Joe, at this point, you and I can watch a scene in rehearsal and feel where the rhythm is off, you know, and that there is very little difference between 
what we see when we film it and when we get to the editing room. And that's a learning process because it, it's a different set of standards. And I always go back to Frank Capra, who said, movies are life plus. Mm -hmm. And I, he was talking about in this book about how many times he's been disappointed in the editing room because the scene is too slow. And um, I think that's a couple of reasons, one of which is, as directors, we develop an inherent rhythm, like a musician. We can feel the rhythm of the words like a heartbeat. And if something slows down or whatever, we need a beat, we may change the blocking substitute that or find a way to get the actor to not take that pause there, but to take it where it means the most. And what I find from talking to them is they are so fast. And this is, I, I'm not mocking them, but they are so happy to see stuff being acted out that they are making on set that they lose track. They're like watching the finished movie on the monitor. And then they go in the editing room and they watch it and it's too slow. And I tell, I tell them this because this happened to me. I'm the director. I go, oh, my God, it's too slow. Oh, wait a minute. Take six, the last take. That was the fast one. One take six. And the editor says, this is take six. <laughs> so <laughs> that's like, <laughs> so the idea of learning that they have to have it like a heartbeat that they will develop this over time so that when you do the rehearsal, you stop it before it goes on too long slow. You don't want to ingrain the actors into taking this pace. You have to, you know, get them to the Here, pace Here's my you question, want. Alan. Like as, a, yeah. as someone sort of, you know, like I'm sitting in this class and I'm, I'm eager to get going. It's like um, you've got to have something else for you besides, oh, don't worry, you'll get better at this. Like how... How do you communicate to like a young first time filmmaker how to get better with the pacing of a scene? Well, I tell them first off that pace of a movie begins on the page. By the time you get to the editing room, it's triage. If it's not paced right. Yeah. Yeah. And so you have to not fall in love with the dialogue. You have to cut it down. And then when you watch it, Stop the actors if you don't be seduced by what you're seeing. Yeah, yeah. Be, be two people at once. Actually, three, I tell them. One is the artist who's just out there having a ball, you know, mm -hmm. getting this thing, and, and it's, it's all like uh, ego, you know, and you're doing this and you're doing that, and it's thrilling. And then on your other shoulder is the angel who's saying, does this make sense? Is this scene, did I see the knife long enough? You know, all the things that could go wrong has got to be heard by the angel on one shoulder and the devil on the other, you know. And you've got to be objective on the set as well as subjective. And you have to listen to the angel when he says, nope. You've got to have them come closer or you have to have, pick up the pace here, et cetera. And then I said, there's a third person. And the third person is the one wearing the watch. 
And you look at your watch and you say, I really can't do this more than two more times. So you, you get it to happen faster, you know. And I say it's not overall fast. It is as patient. You've got to hear the silence between the words and know if it has meaning. And then I talk about Cary Grant and his girl Friday. Mm. And run a clip from that. Ever run the clip from uh, Sullivan's Travels at the beginning? The scene in the office? You took the words right out of my mouth, Joe. <laughs> it dazzles. It dazzles. They so love that scene. And they love the pace of it. And I said, now watch how the blocking is. They are circling Sullivan. They're trying to cut off his escape. Right? And the other thing I want you all to watch and it's a trick that uh, Preston Sturgis does, is that the frame is about a, a foot too, too narrow, a little bit too narrow, because then they're bouncing the side of the frame, and it feels like they can't control the energy. And it feels like you're shaking a box, and it works really well in that scene. So those are kind of, I show them definitely, always show them that scene. And, of course, we get on the topic of exposition. How to not let the movie die while you're explaining it, especially a comedy. And how blocking, having motion, having tasks that make sense while you're giving exposition mm -hmm. is, the, is where you live and die in comedy, you know, and reveal character. And so I say to them, okay, um, I'm going to show you something where the exposition is fantastic. The blocking is great. And, you know, I'm sorry, all of you, but we're going to the top of the mountain here. Some like it hot. And it's the scene where Tony Curtis has been out all night with Marilyn. Uh -huh. And he's wearing a sailor suit, right? And he comes in the window. And Jack Lemon has been out doing the, the uh, rumba or the tango. Sometimes if yeah. there's time in the class, I run the setups to it. But sometimes I just bring up Tony Curtis, starting with the boat backing up, which is funny in and of itself. So he climbs in the window and brilliantly, Jack Lemon has the maracas in his hands. Yes. <laughs> it says everything you need to know. And he's lost in the maracas. Because the movie cannot continue without each of them explaining to the other what happened. Yeah. And how they feel about it. Yes. Yeah. And so when, when Tony Curtis keeps pointing out, what about the honeymoon and, and Jack Lemon's doing all those great lines, every answer that Jack Lemon has, he's like Ed Shaughnessy on The Tonight Show, but up bump with the, you know shaking the maracas, and at one time, he just tosses it in the air and catches it right on the beat. So they are yeah. laughing and laughing, and then Tony Curtis delivers the hammer where he says, why would a man marry a man? Which in this day and age is loaded. And yeah. Jack Lemon says, security. Security. They all <laughs> fall out of their seats. They've been totally seduced by brilliant writing, you know? Yeah. And then who walks in the room? Marilyn Monroe, you know? So yep. it's all about finding exposition. There's a lot of exposition. It goes really fast. 
and the movement and playing comedy, having a comic story go on that's not about the exposition. And then I say to them, good luck. <laughs> because yeah. that's the top of the mountain, you know? Yeah, that's murder. That is just murder. It's uh, one, of, one of many reasons I think we miss cigarettes, right? Because at least a, <laughs> if your character yeah. had a cigarette, they had something to do while they were talking. So sometimes, Joe, I give them mechanical tricks because they'll, they'll want to know something, right? And so I say, always stop the rehearsal if it's going too slow. Um, do the rehearsal and keep asking them if they take a pause at the beginning of the rehearsal uh, after their first line or second line, don't let them do that. Just stop that, you know, and tell them, I really think your pauses are meaningful, but let's save them for when it really counts at the end. Because if we save them, you'll build to it and it'll be so memorable. And then you do a, a little uh, whatever it takes, you're lit. And I, then I always say, because uh, I learned this because we always do a camera rehearsal in, in television. You know, during the camera rehearsal, I want to try something so that when we actually roll, everybody knows what they're doing, you know? So while we're doing this, why don't you guys run the lines as fast as humanly possible? Brilliant. Yeah. And then they do that and they're laughing and smiling and enjoying it. I go, okay, that's a little too fast, but you know, in, inside my heart, I was totally enjoying this. So how about this? How about we try this in the master? Because if I can keep both of you on the screen and not have to cut away, it's just going to be a gift. And I said, and I promise you, when we get to your close-ups, you take the beats. And it usually works. <laughs> it usually works. You know, this is like distilling down 40, 45 years of standing on a set. You know, exactly. <laughs> you know, that, that the one thing as a director that just made me so crazy because I just swore like, okay, I won't do it today. I won't do it today. Was that thing where you are? You're dazzled by what you're looking at. Uh, you know, it's like, oh, they're doing great. Oh, they're 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 giving me such wonderful dialogue, and the conversation is so good and. Then you get back and you look at it and it's like, oh, it's so fucking slow. And it felt, yeah. it felt like what we're doing right now, but it's, it wasn't somehow. And, and yeah. developing that eye or you could just tell immediately that you need to speed it up. Oh, boy. I think also yeah. when something clearly isn't working and now you're in the class and you're criticizing it, um, you know, I always bring up something I did that was a similar mistake. And here's what happened. And for pacing, I talk about a scene I directed in St. Elsewhere with Alfre Woodard and uh, I've forgotten her name, a Vietnamese actor. There's a big, big scene in a chapel at the hospital and Alfre Woodard cries in the scene. And it's the first time I ever directed a scene where anybody cries. And I have these three great women actresses and I was fascinated. <laughs> and every time Alfred would have cried, I went, oh, my God, you know, mm -hmm. and it was I reveled in it and I get it to the editing room and it is lugubrious. And Bruce Paltrow watches it in dailies and gave me such shit like that is such a rookie move, Alan. <laughs> you know, <laughs> you were so happy. He totally understood what I had done. You know, 
it's going to end up in close-ups. Are, are you happy with that? You know, Bruce was tough. Yeah. And so I tell him that. I says, well, he did hire me again. You know, so you know, <laughs> I try to give him examples. <laughs> that actually, I think that is, that's where I started noticing your name, I think, was seen elsewhere. I was like, this guy, this guy keeps popping up. Oh, what a great show. Yeah, such, the, such an amazing show. Every week, you know, because you did a couple episodes with some in between, when you get the weekly script, I would tear through it to see what happened next. You know, mm -hmm. the actors you know, were it's, so good. It's, I mean, it's not, it's not, in, it's not in syndication anymore. I don't think. I don't. I don't. I don't think it's. No, it's cable. very hard to see. Yeah. And it's a good show. Yeah. That that no, show like, was in it. And there were was also another show called yeah. The Defenders, which was a great show from the '60s, and oh. you know, East and, and East Side West Side. Should and I get my box set? <laughs> and do you got? Do you have a box set? I, I certainly Defenders. do have my Defenders box set. I thought they stopped. <laughs> yes. I I thought they stopped making them after the first season. They may have. I, you know, I got through whatever was in the box, and the the first one I watched was the. One with the guy who does the um, Frank Gorshin. Mm -hmm. And he would be able to do imitations of people. And he's the killer. And he falls apart on the witness stand. And all the personalities came out. And watching that as a seventh grader, I was like, that's the best acting I ever saw. <laughs> <laughs> and, you know, I've always had a... Um, I think you have it too. We have a social conscience. We get righteously indignant. And the defenders really fed that, you know. It was yeah, and it's unknown today. No, and and the East Side West Side with George Scott uh, was another one where he's a. You can find some some of those are on YouTube. Some some of those are on YouTube. Yeah, they, yeah. they, they, they look yeah. bad, but but they're 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 accessible yeah. at least. And I do. I have a DVD of the first season of Saint Elsewhere, but they never did another one, which is uh, very very frustrating. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, I think it's so time we got a little action here, guys. We've been talking about talk. Okay. You know, Josh, we're, we're right in your alley. You love a good action movie. and I, uh, I, do, I do enjoy the action films, yes. Okay, so I show yeah. them. I'm, um, not, I'm not the guy you should hire to direct action scenes, though. I'll tell no. you that. <laughs> <laughs> so I show them stuff at first to dazzle them. Of what can mm -hmm. be done. So, uh, House of Flying Daggers by Imu oh. Zhang. Oh my God. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, it is so beautiful. And the scene I show them is the one where she's surrounded by the drums and they're throwing these beans and she has to figure out which drum he hit with the bean. And she's blind. Yes. And, and she's covered. The cloth her is going yeah. all over the wear and the camera moves with the bean. It's. It is filmmaking of the highest order, you know, and then it turns into the sword fight, you know, where they're fighting with swords. And, you know, when it's over, even if you don't like action, you're like in love with this movie. And it's every tool is used. Sound left and right, you know, uh, the digital work is amazing. It's spotless. You can't figure it out. The choreography, I can't figure out how she gets her leg up that high. You know, it's just <laughs> fantastic. And then I am, um, it also, I have about 30 students from China in the class. 
And so, and I have students from Spain, I have students from everywhere. So I try to show clips that spread it around that they may have seen growing up. So everyone, you know, afterwards when they're talking about it, they can say how they saw it to everyone. It's just inclusive. And so I love showing 36 Chambers of the Shaolin, Mm -hmm. which is the the movie that uh, Quentin thinks is the best, one of the best of all time of the martial arts. And have you seen this one, Joe? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I can't figure out how this director does is what he does. Because he uses a zoom lens instead of cutting. And he zooms in and out so quickly. And yet it looks like an edit. And I have seen I use the fight that I show in it at least a half dozen times. And it is so remarkably blocked and shot that, you know, you come out of it and everyone loves it. They're seeing a little martial arts, et cetera. But those are too advanced. So I go to your friend, Josh, Walter Hill. Yes. And the scene from the Warriors with the chase that ends with the baseball bat fight. Mm-hmm. That should be, if there's a textbook of how to, how to do fights and chases, Walter Hill is the king. And that foot chase, as simple as it is, tells you everything you need to know about how do you do a chase. And then yeah. the fight, yeah. you know, when to use a low angle and so forth and, and how to get the most impact and camera placement. It is, it is real, but it's not beyond what you can do. Mm-hmm. You know, which is kind of what Bruce Springsteen said about the Rolling Stones. We almost <laughs> could do that. <laughs> right, right. We couldn't do what the Beatles do. Well, we, we might. Almost <laughs> and, do that. No, it's true because yeah, he then, doesn't. He doesn't go into those kind of like extraordinary, hyper real. Mm-hmm. Uh, even though he sort of does. Um, yeah, I'm just saying. This one scene where guy just gets hit with a baseball bat, and the way he flips is just—it seems absolutely uh, plausible. Yes. And it's just perfect. And, just that pause for the flip to make it yeah. seem like it's you're going to get your ass totally whopped here. You know. Yeah. It's so in control of the drama of action. And yeah. Well, it's it's written. I mean, that's the thing is action action scenes have to have a narrative, and that that one does, you know. And it uh, yeah, um, and and it's even it's and even they have to carry character. story and character. Yeah, because you know? um, yeah, because it's James Remar's character who's the guy who would do this, uh, who just finally goes, "I'm sick of this. I'm not a guy who runs away." And he just turns around, and they decide to kick the baseball fury's ass. It's just. Glorious. Now, what other Walter Hill fights would you recommend? Oh God, I mean, you know, it's funny. The one that uh, are ones, and 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 I always where it gets a little hyper real or hyper not is is the lack of damage that is done to the characters. But the fight scenes, just the bare knuckle fights in hard times, are amazing. But the fact that Mm -hmm. nobody ever seems to get bruised or walks away with like a bloody nose uh, always makes me a little bit crazy. But uh, yeah, those those fight scenes are great. Um, I think, and then there's something too. Uh, I like ones that um, the fight between Nick Nolte and Eddie Murphy in 48 Hours when they finally go at it. It yeah. seems like two guys just punching each other on the street. It's not. 
Right. Even though he does do the thing with the sweetening the sound or every punch is like, clunk, you know, yeah. but it still looks like two clowns on the street punching each other, which, which is, uh, uh, kind I, of I watched that very closely to think about a scene from that yeah. in the fight. But in that instance, that movie, there's far too much race baiting and there's far too much of that kind of attitude to play. If I was going to run, that's one of the things I have to be careful about when I run the film. Yeah, I'm trying to run just a short bit. If I was going to run an entire movie, I would say, here's why, and here's what is going to appear to you, and we'd have a little discussion. But because I want well, to focus on this By the time you get to that scene watching the film, and I've shown it to, to folks, you know, yeah. younger folks, get it. It's all there. You know who these guys are. The, yeah. the Nolte's racism, you kind of understand, and the affection that's starting to develop between them and all the rest of that is laid out. But you're right. You can't just show a scene that starts with Nick Nolte saying what he says to Eddie Murphy. To uh, yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, that's, you know, it, it's an issue. And, it, you know, Joe, it's like um, they are as serious about film as we were, but they have twice as many films to see as we did. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. And yes, and they have a big film history and they have been watching films and had film classes in high school. Um, so certain directors, if I say, who has seen a movie by John Ford? You know, uh, is he the guy who did The Searchers? Yes. Yeah, so, yeah, I saw that. Ford is the perfect example of a great director that is just doesn't play. I don't run the clips because there are no women in them except Maureen O'Hara or mothers who are dead in paintings on the wall. Yeah. There is a lot of, well, I've always wanted to run a scene for my darling Clementine, but they keep calling Linda Darnell Chihuahua. Jesus. You know, and that's not going to, you know. So yeah. if I do run, I want to run forward. So I think I'm going to run Grapes of Wrath because I think that will, you know, I just don't want to explain it away, you know. But then every once in a while, I get completely surprised. And Lubitsch's Design for Living was fantastically well you know, we watched it at my house with some of them, and they just loved it. They loved the sexuality of it. They loved how smart it was, you know. And they also loved to be or not to be, you know, and oh. couldn't believe that that movie had been made. Remember, you ran a scene from it when you did that thing in the class about comedy yeah. and drama? Yeah. So, and it went over a ton. Well, it's a, it's, a, it's a very modern but, movie but, in a lot of ways. Yeah. Yeah, and I just watched Trouble in Paradise the other night because I read this book about um, Kay uh, Francis Arbit, and uh, it's too yeah, it's too precious to translate unless you're a real film buff. You know, it's a brilliant, brilliant movie. I will never do it. I can't even shine its shoes. But you know. It's it's a little too precious. Ninochka might work for the they they might like him in Ninochka. Yes, I think you're right, and I think that the jokes, the political jokes, in the Ninochka, things like 
Uh, well, the purges are going well. There are fewer but better Russians. What a great line. You know? <laughs> fewer but better Russians. And so a fight scene that I show them is They Live, the John Carpenter. I was going to suggest that. <laughs> sure, yeah. I mean, it's, oh, okay. I, now, why were you thinking of it? Well, because it's because it is good. It's really good. It, it's it and it's and it's it is. It's, a, it's such a, sh- a a showstopper in the sense that it just doesn't quit. <laughs> you know. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> yes. And it's so simple. It's just two people in an alleyway. And mm-hmm. I love it because I've worked in that alleyway so many times. <laughs> and, so, <laughs> and I, it's like, actually, now it's the only alleyway left in downtown. But um, it's just so simple. And it's easy then to see how to block it, you know, and how important over the shoulders are in a fight scene so you can get the head snaps right and, and so forth, you know, and how to vary it. It's just really, really great for that and this year also i decided i want to show um edgar wright scene from world end this fight in the bathroom um edgar is i uh, yes. is a god to them <laughs> edgar is like they just think he's right. awesome you know yeah. <laughs> they're right yep. you know i mean it's so nice to know who they love and they love edgar um and that scene where people's heads come off and it's so loaded with humor and cool shots, you know. Yeah. So that's a good you might, one. You might you might try Atomic um, Blonde. And Atomic Blonde has a great fight. That's that was exactly what's staircase. next on the list. Oh, that's really? next. Oh. <laughs> Joe, you we are th- no, no, Lennon and, but they Lennon and McCartney. <laughs> they cheat. <laughs> yeah, yes. yeah, but you know, they cheat. They cheat so much. So much of that is digital. So much of that is I, I found that funny because that scene is not. It works very well. Oh, I'm, I'm looking I, for continuity. I'm, yeah. Oh, listen. Uh, first off, she's awesome in the movie. Charlize Theron. And it gives me a chance to talk about an actress who took control of her career. Mm-hmm. And decided this is where I'm going and this is what I'm good at. And I'm not going to make bad movies unless it it happens by accident, you know. And Bombshell and this movie, you know, so there's that. Fury Road. Fury Road, of course, yes. And they've all seen Fury Road. They've they've actually mostly seen Atomic Blonde. And it's a woman kicking ass. It goes up and down the stairs. And just when you think it's absolutely over and she's escaping in the car, he shows up again you know, on the hood. So it, it's a real jumper. Yeah. And um, another one, which I don't show in the class, but I have to bring up here because you are fight scene aficionados, is the Bourne Ultimatum. The chase across the roof where the steady cam goes across the roof, through the window, into the fight scene, and they start hitting each other with books, and they end up in the smallest space possible, a bathroom. You know, I mean, I love those movies. Those are great movies. Yeah, I, I we've talked about them. I'm, I'm always, um, I, I like, I like the first. I like Doug Lyman's the best because I, I feel like he does action in a way I can relate to. Where I, 
generally know where people are and where they're going. Whereas the, mm-hmm. the kind of green grass approach was so shaky to me. There's a, we've talked yes. about recently on the show even, um, and I'm sure Lyman got the job off of this. One of my favorite car chases in, in modern film is from his movie Go. And it is, you know, normally with car chases, we're like, uh, uh, you know, Ronan, well, they're fast cars going down the narrowest streets ever or to live and die in LA. Oh, they're going backwards on the freeway. The conceit in Go is it's a car chase. Oh, That's it. Yeah. It is just going to be directed so well it knocks you out of your seat. And it is. It's an amazing, amazing car. And I always know where people are and how everything relates to it. The geography yeah. is there. And and the green grass approach to action just always leaves me wanting exactly a more. That, that throwing it on your shoulder, yeah. throwing it on your shoulder and doing snap. Children of Men. Children of Men also has a great car chase. Oh, oh my God. Yes. yes. Yeah. And that, that 10 minute take where they run the whole length of the thing and the blood goes on the lens. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. It's amazing. That was a. I had that in my office at the Heroes, and Greg Beeman and I would run that about once every two or three weeks. You know, it was like this is what we're aiming for. Yeah, well, if you've <laughs> we got, got, got the, if you've got the equipment right. and the it took, money, it took three sure. weeks to set it up. And, yeah, <laughs> yes, <laughs> that scene is like you know fantastic. They're giving us you an know, extra and, week and twenty million dollars for this week's episode. Yeah. We can finally do this new. <laughs> <laughs> but the camera movement is an issue because yep. the crews, the camera crew is made up of the other DPs. So your gaffer is a DP, your best person, your best, they have a name for it, you know, is a DP, you know, a student. And no one ever goes to the AFI to be a grip. And right. so, you know, getting any kind of dolly move is a major work because they have to level it and stuff they don't do so they do steady cam or they do handheld or they just do it on sticks a lot and so uh getting movement in and so when i show them the fight scenes i mentioned the way edgar keeps his head on the camera really loose and whipping around and certainly paul greengrass does and then twists the you know uses a lot of snap zooms and how confusion and sound are your friends you know for intensity. I know Edgar's Edgar's a huge disciple of Jackie Chan in terms of of uh, directing action. He's got there's a great video of him um, talking about that because I I at, at a young age discovering Jackie Chan sort of in his prime oh. was such a revelation because those scenes are just phenomenal and they're beautifully conceived and beautifully shot and uh, um, oh my god it's 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 always about geography and pacing and narrative and. And, and just one idea, you know, what do we have? We got, uh, it's 40 guys, Jackie and a ladder. <laughs> what can we do? What can we do with that? <laughs> oh, the one where he's in the, uh, the wind tunnel. I don't know what movie uh-huh. that is where he's in the wind tunnel. It's well, that's one amazing. of the more recent ones. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <clears throat> yes. Yeah. 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 Just, just great stuff. A beautiful, beautiful action direction. We want to pause a minute here and thank our sponsor, MoviesUnlimited.com, the movie collector's website. They're not only huge fans of our show, showing good taste, but they feature many of the movies we discuss here so you can easily find them to add to your collection. Sure, you can stream a lot of stuff these days, but when you buy your favorites, you watch what you want, when you want, and there's usually a ton of great content and bonus features like director commentaries, deleted scenes, and all sorts of goodies. 
Yep, and they've easily got at least a thousand of the 2,000 movies that uh, our good friend Alan has been talking about last week and this week. Um, and honestly, God, folks, just streaming. No, no, bad. Physical media is where it's at. Um, physical media, you're not going to wake up tomorrow and find that every copy of some great movie or TV show that you purchased has been erased from existence in the world. That happens with streaming these days. So... Click the Movies Unlimited banner on the Travis from Hell website and buy your favorites. Go now to MoviesUnlimited.com, the movie collector's website where shipping is always free on orders over $50. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I felt a couple of years ago that I wasn't getting... I, don't, I felt like I wasn't really communicating as well as I could with the, uh, the students from China because their background of what they had seen and so forth, they all, there's no problem with language or anything like that. They're all outstanding. So I got a list of movies from them. And that was, I said, you tell me what you want to see. You hear me all the time. And that was really great. So we do that a lot where they'll call me up and they'll ask me, they'll say, I'm doing something um, that is like a haunted house. You know, that's scary. What movies would you recommend? And mm. I go right to the innocents, you know, and then I ask them, where are you from again? And uh, Argentina, why don't you send me a list of your favorite Argentinian films, you know, or you're from India. I need to see, I know the Indian classics. I need to see the contemporary Indian films. And so right, I get an education out of all this you know, and try to reach out to them and, and do stuff, which brings to the point as important as the auteur theory was to us of how we see what's on the screen. To them, it's the concept of male gaze and female gaze. And the uh, British theoretician, her name was Laura Mulvey, and in the 70s, she wrote an essay about the male gaze and how what it meant and how we can move past it, et cetera, et cetera. And they are very aware of it. And to them, it's how they see films in the way that we used to see films in terms of the director. It's like, what is the camera saying to us in terms of and who is carrying the story? Now, more than half of the students at the AFI are women. Mm -hmm. And one of the great things that happens is when, and usually happens on the writer's cycle. So there you go, Josh. The second cycle, the writer will have an idea and gets five other people to do the crew. And that film, when it's done, could only have been made by those six people because it is so intimately involved with what's on their mind and what they're trying to express. And that's when we get these really, really good films. 
really interesting topics, you know, and hmm. it all has to do with them learning the tools and how they feel about whose point of view it is. Right. And what filmmakers that they love, you know, and the filmmakers that um, that they really think the world of, it would be um, Andrea Arnold. Uh, she did Fish Tank. Oh, my God. Yeah. And yeah. Transparent. She did the series. Yeah. I love Dick. Uh, she got fired from a series also. Uh, but um, they love, uh, I gave them a lot of information on Ida Lupino. And so I run a clip from Not Wanted. Uh, Cassie Lemons, who did an outstanding mm -hmm. movie called Eve's Bayou. You know, and uh, talk to me and Harriet. Um, so I try to show those clips and hear what they have to say. And we've had whole classes where we try to dissect what it means, you know. And a really, really good example of male gaze. I mean, you could show Top Gun, you know, the first one. But if you really want to see it interesting, using male gaze as a tool, mm -hmm. clue is a great example. Hmm. It's counterintuitive in that you're doing a thriller. Yeah. So uh, our one of the great DPs, Gordon Willis, decides to do it with long lenses and widescreen in New York City apartments. That makes no sense, you know. And yet he uses it so brilliantly and uses foreground to block parts of the frame. And it's Jane Fonda as a prostitute. So right away, you have the voyeur aspect of it, who's being followed by someone who wants to kill her. So that's male gaze. Who's being followed by Donald Sutherland, a detective. So the long lens thing makes a lot of sense. And it's particularly brilliantly lit. And in a way, it gave us the style of the 80s, you know, with thrillers and multiple cameras and long lenses, et cetera. And it certainly influenced Tony Scott and other people. And so, you know, we talk about that. Uh, Vertigo, a movie they love, is primo. I mean, that's all about male gaze, you know. Um, and Brian De Palma's work, you know, Trust to Kill and so forth. Yeah. I mean, his is almost cartoonishly so. Yes. Yeah. And... Um, I mean, intentionally. Intentionally. He knows what he's doing. Yes, exactly. And and that's what... He uses that, you know. So, uh, we have, you know, these discussions and they... The essay that Laura Mulvey wrote, Visual Pleasure and Narrative Cinema. In 1970, many of them have taken women's studies and women's studies in cinema and so forth. So I had to do some reading <laughs> and I had to catch up and understand what it is they were talking about, you know. And um, it's been really interesting. And the movies Red, White and Blue are big movies with them, you know. Um, and um, it's just been one of the things about it that I have to be aware of, and uh, um, Kelly Reichert. Kelly Reichert is yeah. another uh. director 
who seemingly's camera is objective, you know? And um, the other thing is, with so many women being directors and DPs, they shoot the close-ups differently. There is no use of long lens glamour close-ups. Mm. It's just not in their vocabulary, and it's not how they see other women, unless they were making a statement. And it's the way women have been photographed on camera forever. And well, even, even as a child, uh, I remember the first time I saw an episode of Star Trek on a TV that got reception. Uh, yeah. you know, I was watching a little black and white. So the first time I did, I was like, oh, my God. Like, every time Kirk looks at a woman, there he is. He's Kirk. And then we're always looking a little bit down on her. And no matter what, they have always just smeared the lens with jelly. She's just, she's yeah. fuzzy. And <laughs> it's like, you know, and, and you look at uh, Casablanca. Kirk POV. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, that's it. Exactly, Josh. I mean, Casablanca, the walls are all lit with hard light. But Ingrid Bergman in that white mm -hmm. suit, the, the Phil light just kisses her, you know, and. Yeah. They yeah. don't see each other like that. They don't see each other like yeah. that. And uh, Handmaid's Tale is in many ways a real example of that. Now, did either of you see the first couple of episodes of Handmaid's Tale? I, I well, there's a movie. It. There's a movie also. Okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Not yeah. Before, but the yeah. series hired a woman to direct it who had been a DP. And what she chose to do was she wanted intensity of close-ups and intimacy, but not glamour. So she uses wide-angle lenses, and she uses shallow-focus wide-angle lenses. So the background falls away, but you're still really close and really tight. And she plays things in one shot, many times over the shoulder of a character. One of your main characters. And there's a, a scene in it where the two main characters are in the back of a van. They stop the van. These two women are really involved with each other and they know they're in big trouble. And they take one of them out and leave the door open so that the other one can see this. And they walk that woman back and they hang her without a cut. And the impact of that, because they want the other one to go back and tell everyone, this is what's going to happen to you. And it's a lot of really interesting director's choices, you know, that they make. And it's just a, a point of conversation and a way that I appreciate this job because I'm learning um, and so forth. I not, no one, no one had talked um, to me about that before. I've, I've sort of, it, that show, I've sort of, I don't know if I stayed away, but uh, I think I just got exhausted by people using it as a metaphor for the time we live in because I think it's, Oh, it's yes. a terrible and metaphor. There's only so in. much crying. I think, I I think the time we live in is not Handmaid's Tale. I think it's Emperor's New Clothes. I think that's a much better metaphor for the one we. <laughs> yeah, I gave up after but, the first uh, season. You know. Yep. Um, another filmmaker that they adore, which is in their list, is Wong Kar Wai. Um, sure. Yeah. They. Yeah. Yeah. I. I. I tend to more admire. I. I have yet to key into one of his movies emotionally, but I'm always mm -hmm. glad to be watching one. Does that make sense? I mean, they're gorgeous. Um, oh yeah. Uh, but, but 
Yeah. And uh, yeah, yeah, I mean, I can uh, see, I can see why for sure. When I saw around '95, Chunking Express, which I show clips from, I couldn't believe the camera speeds he was using, and the color temperatures of the light, and there's in that little food shop, he doesn't he breaks every rule. You know, there's no consistent visual style, but it works, you know. And I did this pilot called Desert Breeze when I was under the spell of Chunking Express and it was going to be in Las Vegas. I thought, perfect. I got all this artificial light and all this color and stuff. And I go to meet with the execs at NBC. And okay, Alan, uh, what's it going to look like? Tell us what it's going to look like. And this little voice in my head said, don't say Chunking Express. Don't you Chunking Express. <laughs> it's going to be full of color and movement and so forth. Yeah, we got a director's one car, why? <laughs> so we talk about that one. And there's this movie called Days of Being Wild that he did. He shot the whole movie with, and this is not a typo, an 8.7 millimeter lens. Which is the if, what does that even mean? There's been John? articles of it being the widest lens ever made for 35 millimeter. And there's on YouTube a big piece about it. He was shooting in a tiny little noodle shop the first day. And the only lens they could get, and his great DP, I've forgotten his name at the moment, uh Chris something. Uh that's how they had to get to fit the scene in it. He wouldn't use another location. And he said, so after we shot the scene, we were happy with it. We went around to other locations well, to shoot. Doyle. Sorry, he works with Chris Doyle. Chris right? Doyle. The British, yeah, right. The British. Fantastic. Yeah, the legendary. Says, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I put that, on, every time I put another lens on, I go, oh, it's not as good as the 8.7. So they shot the whole movie with this 8.7 millimeter lens, like true drunk film students, you know, and... <laughs> it just goes to show you if you're about artistic commitment, you know, it's a, it's a very interesting movie and uh, it's a way also of igniting conversation about someone with, that they find as a contemporary culture hero and someone whose work speaks to them, you know, um, mm -hmm. and ghost stories. They, Joe, they love the ghost stories. <laughs> it's one of the genres that is going to be here forever is any kind of supernatural and horror and vampires, etc. And they have grown up seeing it and so absorbed it that they use the tropes of it as if they've made 10 of them. They use the tropes without even having to do the vampire's bite, you know? And uh, it's really, uh, it's one of the things they love. And so I, uh, I gave them uh, thoughts of using the innocence and I ran a scene in the innocence where uh, Deborah Carr and the woman who's the maid are having this big conversation and the camera always is pivoting and using the full frame and widescreen. And then Deborah Carr has that dream of the kids with the multi-layers, you know. And wow, 
you know, the technical achievement. How did they do that? How, well, they didn't do it on an avid, you know, just there. I try to explain to them, well, you see, you make a dupe negative and this kind of thing. And they're fascinated by it. And I've got to tell you guys, more than a few of them say, how can I shoot something on 35 millimeter? You talk about having the film in your hand. I want the film in my hand. Too late. You know, <laughs> and, I, you know, it's just so, it's great. You know, that I'm two fans of Maya Deren, you know, uh, experimental <laughs> filmmaker. Uh, Meshes of the Afternoon, which I hadn't seen since film school, and it's great. That's what they want to do next. They just showed me their latest short, and they want to hand film. Where can we get film? <laughs> I said, I don't know where you can get lenses, even you know, or cameras. It's all digital now. Um, yeah. So they love. I also Ugetsu. I show a scene from Ugetsu, you know, and then we talk about the films, the scary films that they like and so forth. And uh, because I show film clips every once in a while, I guess you could guess this, I show them a little rock and roll at the end of the class. Sure. It would not it be you if you did not do that. <laughs> yep. And for the last day before winter break, I show them James Brown from the Tammy show. And let me tell you, <laughs> the eighth time he drops to his knees, <laughs> you know, with the cape over him and everything, the joy that it transmits to all the students, you know, sure. and seeing those kids in the Santa Monica Civic, a mixed race, I tell them, you know, this was like James Brown's first time playing before all white kids doing his Chitlin circuit act you know, mm -hmm. is, is just really gets to them. And so I kind of mix it up and show them clips from different movies, you know, like uh, Otis Redding and Monterey or, you know, and... Um, you should tell them how devastating the, one that they, the Stones were that they had to follow, James Brown. Oh, were, my God, yeah. Well, no, they, they chose to, and that was the thing. They chose to, and they realized yes. that was the biggest mistake. <laughs> biggest mistake. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it was like uh, the Who wanted to go on before Jimi Hendrix and, at Monterey, and they destroyed everything. And Hendrix got the idea, well, I'm just going to burn my guitar and fuck it right here on the stage. <laughs> so <laughs> he's humping the guitar in the amps, and I say to him, this is everything your parents warned you about with rock and roll in one song. That's right. um, <laughs> and I always show Stop Making Sense, you know, burning hey. down the house as example of true directorial brilliance, you know, uh, flowing with the music, uh, the camera explaining the music to us, you know. And then I can't resist, I do a Scorsese number, and it varies, but uh, usually I do Hot, 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 the one from, um, from Shine a Light. Yeah, yeah. That's, uh, it's also because we can talk about, break it down technically. Josh and Joe, whatever, next time you watch that, think about the focus pullers because <laughs> those cameras are whipping all over the place and that crane arm is going in and out with Mick and they never buzz anybody. And it's a great example of a great director finding the story in the footage. And when 
Keith kicks in and looks at Mick and Mick goes, okay, this is the end of the first verse. We are ready for liftoff here. This is just not another Stones night like it was the night before. You see it happening. Yeah. And Scorsese finds it and he finds that backup singer. And all of a sudden you have a story within the story, you know, and I talk about music numbers having to have like a fight scene and arc to them and telling a story, you know, and we usually get about four or five musicals a year, you know. I, I don't know if this is commonly known that that movie was produced by a very dear friend of mine who's no longer with us, Steve Bing. Um, in fact, there's one shot, and I don't remember which song it is, that I just love. It's a long shot, just looking straight at the stage. And Steve was like my height. He's 6'5", and he had, he had white hair um, his, whole, his whole life. And if you know what to look for, uh, yeah. he's standing dead center about three rows from the stage, bobbing his head along. And like for one second in that movie, all I know is you're watching the happiest boy in the world because like <laughs> the Stones are playing. It's, it's his movie. I don't know if this is commonly known, and I don't remember what song it is, but there's a shot in that movie, the first time in that movie that Keith and Mick share a microphone mm -hmm. in Shine a Light because uh, they had had many, many, many years of just hard, just not talking to each other and all kinds of shit. The first time you see them sharing a microphone in Shine a Light was the first time they had shared a mic in years. Wow. Like they had, that's the beginning of them starting to get back together. And you know that watching it and it just, Oh my God. There's so many funny, great moments that, that Marty gets. Uh, Jack White, when he goes up on stage and he sings the song with the Stones, and Jack White was as big an indie rocker as you could find. And then they start playing a solo and he steps back, you know, while the solo's mm -hmm. going on and he looks to one side and there's half the band. He looks to the other side, yeah. there's half the band. And, he's, and that smile on his face, like, fuck, man, I am in the Rolling Stones for yeah. one song. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. Who would want have, to you, have you seen that? You've seen the one with Bruce singing with the Stones. Oh yeah, doing Tumbling Dice. Same same thing. He talked about that in yeah. the book. It's uh, Bruce couldn't be happier. It looks like his face is going to break. You know. Yep. 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 Uh, that's just yeah, just amazing. But that, that film's fun and great to see an IMAX if you get the chance. I don't know if oh yeah, up. and uh, I'm going to go see uh, Stop Making Sense in IMAX when it comes here. You know. Yeah, yeah, that would it be, just that happened. Would be great. Yeah. So um, well, I love that you do that because because there is, I mean, film is musical. As you, you talked about rhythm earlier, and, and yeah, yeah, there's there's rhythms, themes. There's, I, uh, yeah, I mean, a great film to me is like is like a song, especially when you watch it again, and it, it you can feel the chorus and the verses sort of moving through you almost. Um, but yeah, I, I, music I is in every part. You know. Yeah, um, even even when there's no music. <laughs> yeah, it's in the rhythm. It's in the uh, rhythm of the editing. You know, um, I uh, I like to talk also uh, uh, because the majority of the editors are women, um, and there is not much written about women editors. Um, mm. I talk about the great you know editors that I think have changed things with how films are edited. And I did some research and found that from 1930 to 1945, there was only eight women in the editor's union. Um, but all of them were formidable, like Margaret Booth kind of level. Yeah. And mm -hmm. I studied up and found this woman named Dorothy Spencer. And uh, here's your Darth, what Dorothy Spencer cut. 
Okay, so this is not a woman to be messed with. She cut stagecoach. So John Ford's in the editing room. She cut foreign correspondent. And she also cut to be or not to be. And those are just the highlights. There's a photo of her cutting with a scissor in the 20s. And she worked multiple times with all of them. And the last movie she did, when she was 70-something, was Earthquake. Um, Really? Yeah. Yeah. So that's wonderful. She's a great example for the editors about crossing the line and all this stuff that they struggle with, you know, because I tell them stagecoach, the Indian chase, they're always going in the wrong direction, you know, and um, crossing the line. And, you know, I guess one of the things I also use as a um, as a why for all of this is that Orson Welles says he watched Stagecoach 40 times before he made Citizen Kane. And that after dinner, every night for about a month, this is him quoting him, I'd run Stagecoach, often with some different technician or department head from the studio, and ask questions. How was this done? Why was this done? It was like going to school. And that's as good a reason as any of the importance of watching film, you know, and and stuff and i'm always plugging trailers from hell in the class because it's what they should do you watch something you give an opinion on it you know and um i also ask them to read certain books you know um and uh when i got there there was lists in the syllabus but none of it was films which i thought was kind of wrong and mostly was academic reading and um so i give them um a bunch of things to read uh backwards in heels which is alicia malone's book about women in film and um Mm -hmm. tom's mulattoes mammies and bucks it's um by donald boggle and it's a a history of African-American. It's a good reference book. There isn't any scene with an African-American that isn't referenced in there. And uh, Molly Haskell's from Reverence to Rape. Um, and Hitchcock Truffaut. I said, all knowledge is in here. <laughs> this is the Ten Commandments. <laughs> and um, for a reference book, uh, David Thompson's, Thompson's uh, bi- Biographical Dictionary of Film. Because you can look up anything, and he has an opinion you'll get angry at. Yep. Uh, I don't want to make it too easy, you know. So there's the books, which is good. And you, you need to you need yes. to do that. Yes. Yep, and remind yeah. them and I, to also rewatch the movies you love over and over again. And, and I'm, I'm a big fan, and I, I don't do this. I don't do this as much as I used to, but I think you need to make a point at least once a month of watching a movie you have no desire to see whatsoever. Uh-huh. Well, I saw one that shocked me last night. Yeah. Uh, how good it was. Madonna of the Seven Moons. Has anybody seen that? I know that. It was recommended in TCM by Scorsese. And it is a fascinating movie about a woman developing a split personality and going into a fugue state and coming out somewhere else. And she's 
one character is very religious and the other, of course, is not. And it was on TCM last night. And that was really good. And I also saw um, Saltburn, um, the new movie by Emerald Fennell. Yeah. Yeah. It's a British Gothic movie and uh, really good. Really good. Have you seen Al Conde? did... Uh... No, but I'm going, Joe. <laughs> I am going. You convinced Joanne. She read your review of it, <laughs> and she said, "We are going to see this." Well, I don't. I, I you can wait. see it on net, yeah. you can see it on Netflix. I don't think it's playing theatrically. Yeah. Oh, oh, okay. I didn't know that. Yeah, it's definitely. Yeah. Um, tonight, I'm going to go see um, the Film Geek. Is that what it's called? One of your oh, guests. Geek. Yes. Yeah, I'm going to see that. Richard, uh, Richard Shepard. Uh, yes. I think you'll enjoy it very much. I think you'll Good. enjoy it very much. I'm looking much. forward to that. It's, it's great fun. See that. And, 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 everybody uh, should make their own version. Trying to see if there's anything I left out here. Um, I, mean, I think you're pretty thorough, yes, my friend. Pretty, yeah. pretty thorough yeah. It's like taking the class. <laughs> yes. <laughs> I know. I feel like I'm going to film school again. It's uh, well, Only this know, time I enjoyed it. So we, shall we tell? Shall we tell? Shall we tell oh. the listeners where they, where they can apply to uh, become a, a member of your class? Oh yeah! How, how do you? How does I guess you got to get get into the AFI. And uh, I was hearing you, know, you, Joe. You will really like this. So I get a lot of. We ran out of time. We couldn't solve this issue. And I keep saying you've got to find a new way to think about something, you know, and take a surprise. And I said, okay, so this film could not afford to do a bank robbery and it had to have a bank robbery in it in the middle. So they came up with this idea. They got no permits, no police. They never got location fees. They only told the bank and I run them, you know, gun crazy, the bank robbery. Oh, and I they, thought I thought you were talking about, I'll tell you, go ahead. Yes. Which which we imitated. You imitated, Joe. Uh, first day yeah, of shooting. My first, my first movie, I tried to copy it. Of course, I <laughs> couldn't copy it very well. And it was, it was shot at the same location. The movie I always think of that had to have a so, bank robbery that you that, that they couldn't afford where it works, where they simply, it was, it's not a bank robbery, it's a jewelry heist, but Reservoir Dogs. They just oh, don't shoot it. Yeah. <laughs> it's just not there. You start the instant. Yeah, it's over, you can you tell when you watch Gun Crazy, it's it's one take, you know. And it was right, a hearse. Yeah. It was a hearse that they put the camera in the back of. And for, it's a converted hearse so they can put a track at it. Yeah. In the back. Wonderful. Uh, well, Alan, sir, thank you so much, man, for, for coming on. I'm like, now I want to go direct a movie, goddammit. Um <laughs> it's been it's been a blast talking to you. And of course, we are we are theoretically hyping your your Ramones book. Um. That's true. I want you around, you know, and That's Joe comes off. Yes. Joe, you're, you're great in the book. You're, you're I, 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 thought was, I thought it was a pretty good book. There you go. Yeah. And I think that if you want to know what it was like to make an indie film in the seventies with no money, it's that. Yeah. But I think more than that, you get a real sense of the camaraderie of new world pictures and what, crazy film students could do with the carrot in front of them, you know, and a, and a, and a time, a time that will not come back. Unfortunately, that was, you no. that was that yeah. you had to be there a moment. Yeah. 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 
Yeah, there's a whole generation of us that are very jealous because I think you guys were the last ones to have that experience. Not, ex- not, uh, not entirely the last, the last, but pretty, pretty close. Pretty close. Pretty, pretty. So there's close. a there's um, a um, a tribute to Roger at the uh, uh, at the Arrow uh, in L.A. on the thirtieth, uh, uh, where they're yes. running a marathon of already sold out. It's already sold out. It's part of Beyond Fest, and Alan and I are supposed to. Yeah, be there. It, it sold out in an hour. Yeah, and uh, Joe and I are, are now rich from the proceeds. Yes, because uh, we right. get so much money. We don't. We are speaking fees alone. <laughs> you got to get them to do another. They got to add another night because basically all you're doing now is making most of our audience feel bad that they can't get tickets to this. So, well, um, I'm actually curious to see Grand Theft Auto on the screen again. You're actually going to watch the movies. <laughs> uh, I'm not going to watch Rock and Roll High School. But uh, I'm definitely going to watch Grand Theft Auto. I'm going to watch some of Piranha. And then I've never seen that uh, Rogers movie on the screen. So uh, I'm looking oh, forward okay. to that. Yeah. All right. Do you think John Davison's yeah. going to show up? Um, I don't know. I hope so. Uh, Amy Jones he, just he, posted he how never shows she up. to be there. He never shows up. Uh, and it'll be cool to see Ron, you know. So uh, Yeah. Was Ron Howard showing yeah. up? No, it's it's, it's well, us. It's Alan and me, and and uh, and Ron and uh, Amy Jones and John Davison and Roger, of course. And Roger, yeah, yeah. Um, well, well, uh, basically, Joe, if they haven't been on our show, ask them to come on. <laughs> yeah, that that is your mandate, my friend. Uh, well, we'll be back next week with another thrilling episode of uh, the movies that made me. But uh, until then, Alan, thank you. Thank you, um, guys. And, Thank you for letting yeah. me uh, reflect on, on what I'm doing and uh, et cetera. So. You're doing God's work, my friend. It's true. Okay. Bye, everybody. See you at the movies. The Movies That Made Me is the official podcast of Trailers From Hell, the best damn movie website there is. Our engineer is the composer Don Barrett, who also transmogrified, produced, and created our theme song. We are proud to be part of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. Learn more at airwavemedia.com. This is Josh Olsen for the movies that made me. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply.